Hi everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History here. We've got, I get taken to school. I get taken to school today by Dr. Eleanor Yaniger, who's one of the best in the business. She's a medieval historian. She specialises in kind of social history. And she gets triggered on the internet when someone uses the term medieval inaccurately. As when, they, when they use the term medieval to describe something effectively that's primitive, dirty and stupid. She gets medieval. I mean, I can't even say that, but she does get medieval on them. And uh, she got medieval on me. She taught me a, a, quite a few lessons about medieval education in this podcast. Um, it's a lot more sophisticated than idiots like me think. So she's a hugely engaging, wonderful uh, academic, teaching at various universities around London, teaching at various London universities. She's a rising star. We welcome her to the History Hit uh, Network, not just on audio, but on TV. She's made a documentary about medieval London. It's overlapping jurisdictions. It's wild. If you wish to watch this documentary, it's coming up soon. Please go to History Hit TV. Uh, it's a new sort of digital history channel, really, and it's accessible for podcasters at a special introductory rate. If you use the code POD1 at checkout, POD1, you get a month for free, and then you get a second month, which is one pound, euro, or dollar. And we've got one of our biggest weeks ever next week. We've got Elna Yaniga coming in the next few weeks, but next week we've got Mayflower 400. We've got an exclusive documentary going up on the channel. We've also got Battle of Britain 80. We've got a whole season of programmes coming out. We've got Australian historian Matt McLaughlin. We've got a new programme with me and Stephen Bungay. Uh, we've got Victoria Taylor, the British aviation historian. She's got a, a new podcast out. So it's, it's basically all happening next week. It's one of our busiest weeks ever. It is back to school here at History Hit. Just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's, who's stuck with us and uh, who believes in us because it's, um, we're really delivering now on our promise to make this the world's best history channel. So thank you very much. In the meantime, everyone, here is Dr. Eleanor Yaniger. Enjoy. Hello, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me once again. It's such a pleasure. You've been doing so much for us recently. You've been making shows for History Hit TV. You know, once we find top talent, we never let them go. You're on the team. Let's start. First of all, give me, give me, my, uh, give me my customary telling off. What do you say? to me and others who use the word medieval we shouldn't but we do as shorthand for something that's stupid barbaric uh pr primitive religiously extreme dirty go on give me your give me your party your three minute rebuttal okay so my three minute rebuttal to that is in general there it's difficult to use the word medieval in those ways because usually when people are using the word medieval to mean those things they're actually not even talking about the medieval period right they're usually talking actually about the early modern period and they just don't know the difference right so uh, you know it's one of these things where there's an invisible line and like no one okay at the end of the medieval period woke up and said oh, uh, we're early modern now that's it everybody it's a new era you know that's not how things were but you know with the hindsight that we have as historians and as people living in the modern world we can kind of look back and say, Ugh, well, you know, it, it's it's a blurry border. We don't know exactly where it is, but I can tell you pretty definitively by the time we're talking about the 16th century, we're talking about the early modern period. And that's what people actually mean a lot of the time when they're like, oh, well, uh, this is really violent. You know, a lot of the time they're actually talking about uh, the early modern period. If they're talking about things like torture or if they're talking about really difficult penal things, a lot of the time they'll be talking about the early modern period in which we see a great proliferation in ways to torture people and enthusiasm for torturing people. 
in fact. Or, um, you know, if someone says, oh, wow, uh, really violent, lots of wars, something, oh, this is so medieval. You know, have a look at the wars that we had in the 20th century. I'll tell you what, they've got a much higher kill rate than wars did in the medieval period. This isn't to say that there weren't wars, of course, but, you know, we're actually a lot more violent on the scale of things now than anyone was in the medieval period, really. And, you know, because it's a, it takes a lot more to get to get in a ditch with someone and stab them with a sword, you know, that takes a very particular kind of, uh, of uh, gumption, whereas now we kind of press buttons and kill people. And so we're a lot easier about doing it. Or if we're talking about things like, oh, they're dirty or they're filthy, um, we actually find that in the medieval period, uh, people bathed more than they did in the modern period. And in fact, uh, medieval people were really into bathing. Um, for them, it would be fun to just kind of like go to the bathhouse. They saw it as going to the spa. You know, you do that once a week. You'd sort of scrub up at home as best you could, but you'd go out once a week for a nice big soak. And then you see that actually it's in the early modern period that that goes out of fashion. And there comes in this whole idea of uh, actually it's better to be dirty. It's better not to, well, not to be dirty necessarily, but um, they don't think about cleanliness in the same way. They don't say, oh, you take a bath in order to be clean. They say you change your clothes to be clean. This is a big early modern thing. Um, and we just tend to say, oh, well, if that's what happened in the early modern period, then whatever was happening in the medieval period must have been more so and worse. And we just kind of assume. Um, and it has to do with the fact that, you know, a lot of us aren't taught medieval history because it's complicated and it's weird and what medieval history is really varies place to place. So it's difficult for us to teach it. So we don't learn about it. We have these particular myths handed down and it just doesn't have any bearing in truth. And so, you know, that's kind of like part A of the rant. Part B is that also the problem with this is and why it's annoying. I mean, obviously it's annoying to me because I love to be pedantic and, to, and just say, well, actually to people. But the other reason why it's difficult uh, thing to do and why I say that we shouldn't use medieval in that way is that it kind of lets us off the hook for the things that we do. You know, if we look at some kind of violent act and we say, oh, that's really medieval, it lets us off the hook for the fact that it actually represents our own time period really, really well. You know, we're still kind of a violent society for all intents and purposes. It's just that a lot of times the violence is happening somewhere that we can't see it. Um, you know, and that prevents us from dealing with it and actually making changes to improve our society or to say, okay, well, actually, what does this say about us? As opposed to saying, well, this has something to do with some people who died 800 years ago, you know? Um, so I think that it's not a useful term or a useful way of saying that things are, you know? Um, I will go ahead and call something medieval when it actually is medieval, which, you know, happens. You know, something like an investiture ceremony of a king, I'll be like, ooh, that's medieval. You know, something, um, you know, religious debates about transubstantiation, I'll get very excited about that and call that medieval. But, you know, we need to use our terms correctly correctly so that we can kind of have a better society and be more connected to our actual world and uh there you go that's the rant that's the one <laughs> excuse me dr yannick i can't believe you are you are earthing some of that some of that medieval poison into the early modern period what do you think you're doing I'm, although as i'm saying that of course i'm thinking to myself uh the titanic violence you got the 30 years war of course um the start of the largest project of Territorial acquisition in history by European empires, the enslavement of forced transportation of millions. So maybe I should back down on this. But today it was a great idea you had, which we should talk education. People are all going back to school, we hope. What is education in the medieval world, if it's even possible to circumscribe at that time and geographical period? And, and who gets it? 
Yeah, so this is a really interesting one because uh, one of the things that you kind of can make a big, I mean, it's a draw a broad and sweeping generalization about um, a thousand years of time, right? Um, and that's that education as the way that we think of it doesn't really exist and it's much more concentrated in particular area of society, right? So, um, you know, your average peasant is not really going to receive an education. Um, they don't really need one in the way that we do now. You know, reading and writing is not something that um, is going to come up so much the things that they need to make sure that they can do is uh, plant and harvest and keep animals alive. Um, and so there, that is an education in and of itself, you know, and something that one learns. Uh, but we don't really tend to think about that as education. But, you know, just shout out to peasants. We always like to acknowledge the 80% of the population that are the peasantry and the fact that they are not really necessarily going to be involved in this. And why I find uh, medieval education really interesting is that it kind of varies across the period. So when you kind of have uh, in the very early medieval period, so right after the collapse of Rome, you have a lot more emphasis on kind of like um, individual learning for rich people who will get tutors in, you know, so this can be um, at a court. So if you're a king, you're going to employ some of the smartest and best uh, to, uh, to educate your children. And um, interestingly, then in particular, it is seen that all children who are at a really high level at court, uh, they all need a very good education. So it doesn't matter if it's your daughter, she's absolutely expected to read and write and have things to say. Uh, it's not as gendered as you would think that it is. And that is kind of like a hangover from like Roman practices and how things were done then. As time shifts on, you have the birth of the great medieval institution, which is monasteries. And monasteries kind of tend to change the game a bit because theoretically, um, at a monastery, anyone can get educated. Uh, and this is because for monasteries, one of the big things that they aim to do is they kind of aim to take uh, men out of the world so they can concentrate on God and they praise God through ora et labore or prayer and work. And one of the forms of work that they do is uh, keeping texts alive. So they'll usually have large scriptoria, they'll have large libraries where they're all day long copying, copying, copying out texts. And that can be anything from the Bible, you know, that's a big one. Uh, or it can be something like Aristotle or Plato or any of the classics like, you know, the Aeneid, that's something that they would be um, writing texts of all day. So one of the things that they have to do in order to have a, a kind of a scriptoria on that level is they have to have enough educated people to keep it running. So they're constantly educating people. They're, they're constantly taking in boys who will become monks who are also going to work within this system. So some of the monks are more specifically teachers and they'll have a really, really great schools going on where they are just reading ancient texts. They're learning how to write them. Uh, there are big philosophical debates. And this is true sort of across Europe, um, but the big, big monastery that is really celebrated is Cluny in the French lands. And that is like really, really incredible. But at the same time, we do see, for example, um, some monks, uh, especially around in England, are considered so good and so educated that they end up at the court of Charlemagne and this sort of a thing. So Alcuin of York. Uh, really famously, you know, ends up kind of down uh, on the continent. You see there's this uh, great kind of um, sharing of resources and sharing of monks. And, you know, people are know enough about scholarship and are interested enough in education that if they've got a really nice court going, they're like, I'm going to have that monk, send that monk down to me. <laughs> you know? So uh, people will travel great distances to get some monks. But um, the thing to keep in mind about monasteries is, again, this isn't really for everyone. Like, in theory, in theory, a peasant family could say, okay, well, we're going to go pledge our son um, as an oblate 
It's what it's called when you send your son off to a monastery young. But in practice, that doesn't really happen because in the first place, you need to be able to like spare your son. So say you're running a farm, it's probably nice to have another set of hands around like to help out with the cows and to help with the plowing and everything. In the second, if you send your kid as an oblate, they also have to come usually, it's, it's like the unwritten rule is they come with some money. Uh, so you send some money along and say, okay, well, they're got, this is going to help for their upkeep now that they're going to be in here for the rest of their lives. Um, the monastery, incidentally, becomes like a really big place where people stash like their third sons or fourth sons if they're rich, right? So, you know, you kind of have one who's going to take over the, the family name. You have one who is going to go off and fight in wars. And you're like, oh, and we'll have one that'll pray for us. So they'll, they'll get themselves a monk, right? So for a long, long time, this kind of holds... But then um, under, again, Charlemagne and the Carolingian Renaissance, which happens in the ninth century, it's one of one of the several renaissances that we have in the medieval period, uh, Charlemagne makes a big move and he says, well, you know, people should be able to get educated and they should have access to all this great knowledge without having to join an actual monastery and say that they're retiring from life. So what he does is he sets up cathedral schools. And so, you know, it kind of does what it says on the tin, right? So at any cathedral, in theory, you can send kids there and they can be educated. It's usually boys, but we do have some uh, examples where uh, girls can get educated at the cathedral schools as well. So, you know, here in London, you would uh, pop along to St. Paul's and you could get your education. And that is free. Uh, but again, it's just can your parents spare you? And this does a lot, actually, for uh, literacy in the medieval world generally. So in any city, like any kid in theory can be getting a good education. Um, you can also get packed off to a city um, if your family's got the money and there's somewhere for you to stay. And so you're going to learn to read and write there. And this is one of these things where, like a side note, when I'm talking about literacy here, I'm talking specifically about Latin. So there isn't really a big push uh, to read and write in the vernacular. It, it certainly happens. Um, a lot of the fun literature in the medieval period um, exists in the vernacular. So uh, like courtly love literature or romance literature, a lot of the time is written in French, for example. But no one is going to be using French as, for example, like a written business language. Like if you are going to ship a bunch of fleece from France to uh, Germany, you're probably going to write things out in Latin because that's the understood you know, language. So it's not a lingua flat, uh, franca yet. It's, you know, the lingua latina. So everything is done in Latin. Then at the cathedral schools, there's a new way of dividing up the way that they talk about education. Um, and that is they come up with the concept of the liberal arts. And the liberal arts are really interesting because uh, so there's seven of them all together, but they put them into two different categories. So the first category is the trivium, uh, which is grammar, logic and rhetoric. So basically grammar, learning to read and write Latin, uh, logic, learning how to kind of puzzle things through. So there's a lot of Plato, there's a lot of Aristotle and then rhetoric, which is learning to argue about it um, and they really really love arguing and there's a huge um a huge price is kind of put on being able to make a philosophical arguments and they do literally argue uh, it's one of these things where people from various cathedral schools will literally go from place to place um and they'll interrupt each other's lectures and they'll have screaming matches about aristotle and it gets really really wild but so say you then figure out the trivium you've got that covered you move on to what's called the quadrivium and that is music astrology, uh, geometry, and arithmetic. So that's when you get into the kind of like sciences and maths. So 
all of those things, um, you know, are really moving forward in the medieval period, which is one of those things where you wouldn't necessarily think about. Um, they love, in particular, astronomy because it's seen as absolutely necessary to know what's going on with the stars, to understand what's going on with Earth. So we'll see, like, really uh, complicated and complex tables that are used, for example, to uh, track the way Mercury moves through the sky or Mars moves. Uh, so they understand concepts like retrograde and they know how to calculate for that. And it's absolutely crazy stuff without calculators, you know. Um, these are really brilliant people. But then things kind of move out of the cathedral schools and the cathedral schools always keep going, but that tends to be more of a thing for specifically city kids if they want to get an education. And then you have the rise of the universities. So the first first university is in Salerno in the Italian lands, and they do more specifically medicine. So uh, if you want a degree as a physician, you really want to learn all of the ins and outs of something, you go down to Salerno. Um, they're doing um, actual dissections and that sort of a thing of bodies. They have a kind of idea of what's going on um, inside of the, the human body, inside the eye, inside of anything. They got they all, all kinds of surgeries happening. Um, and they are consulting texts that come in from the Middle East, and they're learning a lot about uh, about medicine, which is cool. In Paris, that's kind of like the next really big thing because they more specifically are all about a theological or philosophical education. So if you say that you want to be like high up in the church, say you're gunning for uh, you know a bishopric, you want to be a bishop and, and live real fancy, or you want to make yourself useful at a court, you will say, okay, well, I'm going to go to the University of Paris because that's where there is a big, big emphasis on theological studies and legal studies. So in Paris, that's when things get like really, really cranked up because you have students coming in from all over Europe in order to go to the school. And uh, university students in the Middle Ages kind of act like university students now do. Um, and they're rowdy and they're wild. Um, and you have actual riots that start in Paris because the students will do things like run out on their bar tab at an inn. And then, um, you know, there's an innkeeper who kind of like chases a group of students who've uh, left their left their bar tab unpaid. Um, and they beat him up really, really badly. And everyone is like, okay, look, come on guys. Like you can't just, you can't just go around beating people in the street because you didn't want to pay your bar tab. This is, this is not a great way of doing things. So the church has this really like complicated problem on their hands because they're educating all of these kids. These kids are rowdy, they're wild and they're drinking and they're getting in legal trouble. And they're like, okay, well, how do we get around this? And their answer to this is they're like, we're going to make all students members of the clergy. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. 
Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Oh, yeah, that, okay. That is clever. That's very clever. Yeah. So they're not saying that it's going to curtail their behavior in any way. Their behavior is going to remain exactly the same. But the thing is, once they get in a drunken brawl, they can't be tried in regular courts anymore. So they won't be under the jurisdiction of the king in Paris. They'll be under the jurisdiction of the church. So you'll drag these naughty students in front of, you know, their own headmaster. They'll slap them on the wrist and go, guys, knock it off. Come on. You can't do that. And then that'll be that. And everything kind of goes on. Um, and this is where the term that you may have heard a town and gown relations comes from. Uh, because all medieval students are wearing clerical gowns like robes. Uh, and so that's like the, t the gowns as opposed to the town uh, where a university takes place. So interestingly, like this, it kind of does two things. It explains the real interest in, you know, theology that you have on the part of a bunch of uh, rowdy drunks. But at the same time, it shows you how good people in the medieval period are at getting around legal dodges, right? So here's, they put some of their finest legal minds on it and they're like, all right, it's going to be easier to stop a bunch of 18 year olds uh, from getting tried than it is to stop them from drinking. So we're just going to have to go with that one. Um, and it kind of, it works. Like, so in Paris, uh, it becomes enough of a thing that uh, at a point in time when town gown relations are really bad, all the students go on strike and they say, okay, well, that's it. Well, we're not having a university anymore. And it almost brings Paris to its knees. Like Paris is really dependent on having all this money come in from students. Students bringing Paris to its knees. That isn't, that's never going to happen again. That's a one-off. Exactly. So, you know, it's it's probably it's cute because it's some of the very first, you know, Parisian student riots and it's all about beer and uh, their their access to it. Um, so then uh, you see the same thing kind of everyone sees what it's doing for Paris and they start making their own universities. So here in England, you get Oxford and then Cambridge, obviously. Um, in Italy, there's the Bologna Law School, which actually now that i'm recalling it, it starts a bit before paris it's just not it's just more specifically legal um and all over italy you'll have various universities springing up and then it becomes like this sort of thing where if you want to prove that you've got a really nice city you have to get a university so um for example when the emperor charles the fourth is doing up prague to make it uh, a center of you know religion they're like uh oh we better get a university in here and that's when the charles university is founded um in 1348 so uh but to found a university you, you have to have sign off from the actual pope because it's a church uh thing because all these kids you know drunk or not they are clergy members and they might go on to be clergy members you know 
know, after they've learned all this stuff, they might uh, go on to work in the church. They might work as educators. Uh, they might do all kinds of things. But um, it basically, if you want to work at a court and you're coming from kind of like lower positions, that's how you do it. But so having said all that, that's all kind of like for the dudes, right? Uh, because if you're going to be a member of the clergy, if you have to take holy orders in order to go to university, you have to be a man. So what do women do? And the answer is they're usually kind of educated at home. And in fact, um, if they are from the richer family, so yeah, sure, you might have attended a cathedral school. Um, but richer families often employ teachers and that sort of a thing for their own kids. So say in London, you might bring a teacher in if you are kind of from uh, several wealthy families, say that you work for, a, you're a guild member, that sort of thing, you've got money. You might employ a teacher to teach your daughters and your sons at home and that sort of a thing. Um, and we know actually a lot of the time those private teachers are women. So women are getting educated and women are frequently educators. So it's sort of the same as now where a great majority of people who are doing elementary education are women. Um, and even before then, in the home, in literate households, women will be teaching children sort of their ABCs or kind of very, um, the very simplest sort of phonetic reading and that kind of thing. So Eleanor, I was going to ask, but I mean, are there any non-religious roots to education? But yeah, you've just answered that. So, but it's predominantly women and in the domestic sphere. Yeah. So the minute the minute that you kind of take it outside of the bounds of the church, it tends to be female, which is really really interesting. Um, higher up, you know, if we're talking about a royal courts and royal education, it might be that you get your own monk in or something to do it and teach people in the home. But a lot of the times when it's private, you know, and it is women and it's interesting because that's something that we have in common you know with the modern period if you think to you know all the great kind of like 18th century romances or 19th century romances you know the governess is always a woman um so you bring a woman in to kind of uh, look after these kids and um it's interesting because we have these great um we have a, a lot of knowledge of, of, that we get about this comes from really cool sources like books of hours and books of hours are essentially really fancy prayer books that women, especially rich women, kind of wear on their belts and it tells you what prayers to pray uh, at various times of the day. But it's also just a really pretty thing so that you can show off that you've got a lot of money. <laughs> but um, within them, they'll have like ABCs and they will have like really simple um, reading, uh, reading a uh, tasks for people so we know that women at home and especially rich women are doing their own educating of kids um so there is also a kind of structural a, a non-structural learning that happens within the home but if you want something with a certificate if you want someone to stamp it off it goes through the church uh so yeah it's kind of like there's these two spheres where that happens the reputation of the church is that it did circumscribe intellectual and scientific endeavor is this true? Was the church a gatekeeper? The church is actually the biggest supporter of especially scientific learning in the medieval period. Like, they're the ones doing it. They're the ones who are like, oh my god, yes, please go to university. Uh, hey, look at the stars. What do you think that is? You know, they're the ones that are actually really pushing for a lot of uh, scientific advancements. Now, there are some, you know, issues that you will have um, where there is a lot of back and forth about whether or not, uh, for example, dissections can take place. Um, they do take place in the medieval period um, because there isn't actually a church prescription on it happening entirely. It actually tends to be more legal and on the part of 
of um, kings. So here in England, for example, they have one of the longest standing bans on doing dissections, which goes into the late 14th, early 15th century. But in Italy, there will sometimes be uh, rules that every few years you have to perform a dissection and you have to make sure that all the physicians know what's going on inside of people's bodies. So that's kind of a myth. Um, about the medieval period and it's actually an interesting one because people say oh well medieval people are really stupid and uh, the church was stopping them uh, dissecting people but actually um, in the Roman period you were not allowed to dissect people because of uh, you know pagan beliefs so it's actually one of those things where that existed further back and we don't accuse them of you know stymieing the the scientific process Um, there are times on the other hand when they absolutely will shut your thought down but it tends to be more theological for example, Albigensian crusade against um, what the church called the Cathars, what we're starting to call like the good men of Languedoc, when they believe something other than what the church believes, oh yes, they will come in and try to stop you. But it tends to be religious and it's not actually scientific. Um, The scientific thing basically kind of kicks off with the idea that the church suppresses science is once again, early, early modern, not medieval. And it's kind of ten- it's tied up most specifically with the Galileo trial, um, and that's a whole other kettle of fish. So medieval church, not so much. Early modern church, I will give it to you. <laughs> I will. <laughs> okay, I want to come back to the big, sort of strategic point about education and science and progress. But before I do, can I ask why they believed in educating people? Was it about making better Christians, or was there just a, a kind of Aristotelian idea of? of living a good life, the joy of learning, uh, self-development for its own sake? So, I mean, the answer is kind of yes on both those counts. So, I mean, for most medieval people, medieval Christians in particular, you know, the goal is that you're always attempting to be sort of the best Christian that you can be. Um, And because a lot of formal education is about, is, you know, made specifically by the church, there is a big emphasis on that and kind of understanding the divine nature of Christ, understanding the divine nature of the world, you know, when especially they're kind of doing things like... um, you know, what we would call science, you know, one of the things that they're trying to sort of discover is the, what they see is the divine, the divine presence within nature, that sort of thing. And they're very, they're very explicit about that. Things like geometry in particular can be seen as being particularly sacred, like um, a way of understanding um, how God orders the universe and how shapes work, that sort of thing. It's seen very expressly as divine. But on the other hand, there's a lot in there that is also about the very pleasure of learning. So it's, it's construed as, you know, being a good thing. People really enjoy reading, you know, even if it is, um, you know, whether that be in the vernacular, if you're, you know, want to read the Roman de la Rose um, in French, um, or if you want to read, um, you know, Dante or something like that, that gets uh, translated into um, Latin so that it can circulate more frequently. You know, people read for pleasure. People really enjoy that. Um, people like being smart. You know, for them, you know, even people like Abelard who are, you know, big jerks and going around having um, giant arguments. For them, there is a real sport and pleasure in the kind of constant debates. And they think it, it also is kind of connecting them to the past. So when they are debating theology or philosophy or something like that, they say, oh, well, this links me to Plato. This links me to Socrates and Aristotle. We're a part of this like grand um, historical narrative that is seeking to explain and understand the world as a whole. And they very see them much see themselves as a part of that. But it's also understood that if you're really living the good life, you are educated. To, to live the good life is to have books, you know. 
um, women's books of hours are this really potent symbol of, um, you know, expendable wealth, certainly. But it's interesting and instructive that it focuses on books. So, you know, if you're living a really, really nice life, you're able to have like your own book of prayers and you're able to enjoy reading and enjoy the meditative practice that that allows. So there is a way of kind of seeing this as something that certainly augments your life uh, and makes it better. But then there is also just careerism. Uh, as there is now, you know, um, I will say as someone who teaches at university that the reason that you go to university is so that you um, can learn about the things that you're interested in and enrich your mind and uh, become just a better educated person, which benefits society. But most people will tell you that the reason that you go to university is to get a job. (laughs) So it's exactly the same thing for medieval people. Obviously, they see um, that there's a benefit to education that is in and of itself. But at the same time, well, hey, if you want to get ahead at court, get an education. Um, If you want to get ahead within the church, get an education. Um, You want to be able to make better business deals, get an education. So there is always that ticking away under the surface as well. As always, when we get wonderful stories like you on the podcast talking about the sort of motivations and what drives people from different periods, of course, actually, you know, sounds not so different to today. So I'm nervous about saying this, but do you, come on, do you ever have dark moments when you think that maybe there is some truth to the traditional, or you're going to tell me it's an early modern take, that nothing really happens between kind of Ptolemy and his atlas and his geography in the second century AD and then the sort of Copernican Galileo explosion of of science. I suppose that um, the closest I get to dark moments with this is I do, you know, as someone who's had the benefit of uh, growing up post the uh, idea of the scientific method and all of that, which um, love the scientific method, huge fan. Uh, it's a great thing. Um, you know, I will sometimes get frustrated, you know, uh, when you look at people just simply uh, take something as true. Uh, you know, it, it can be uh, kind of frustrated when, the, when you'll see someone say, oh, well, Aristotle said this, so therefore that's true. So, you know, uh, basing this off of that, we move on. You know, um, it's kind of like, for example, if someone didn't show their footnotes uh, in a, a historical text now, I'd be like, where'd you get that from? You know, and I, I do get frustrated by that. Sometimes, though, it's also kind of delightful. You know, it can be delightful when you see um, a bestiary, which is like a compendium of all the different animals in the world. And, you know, you see them say, oh, okay, well, this is the properties of a basilisk, an animal that definitely exists because some guys saw one once and you know he he can turn you to stone with his gaze and you know i'll see things like that and i'm like you know what this is delightful i'm glad no one's looked into this i don't want to look into this i don't want to know any more about it but at the same time it's it's not true certainly that there is no advancement in terms of uh you know quote-unquote scientific process over the time you know we get way better at surgery um we get much better at mathematics we learn more about you know for example sub-saharan africa we learn more about uh, china that sort of a thing. Um, so we definitely are always learning. It's just that it's not happening at the same rate as it happens now. And that's a shame, but I also feel like we can't really blame people for like not knowing that germs exist. You know, it's uh, there's so much complicated things that happened in that period that allow us for all of the interesting things that we know now, you know, and it, it's very much a, you know, as 
uh, Newton was quoting medieval people on uh, were very much standing on the shoulders of giants. So, you know, I can see further than they can. But um, am I smarter than Thomas Aquinas? I am not. I am certainly not. You know, there are a lot of uh, very clever people in the medieval period who have made, you know, my learning possible. And so I try to be kind about that. Yeah, of course. Like, as you're saying this, I'm thinking, of course, things move in fits and starts. I mean, you know, not that much happens. <laughs> not that much happens in 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 500 years of 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 roman hegemony for example yeah i mean and it's really interesting you know because i like i will see people for example let um you know the romans completely slide on doing exactly the same thing that medieval people do and i'm like why is it okay when the romans do it and not okay when medieval people do it and you know to be honest i think it's that people just think the romans are doing scientific method like they're they're not but people just kind of believe that it just sort of feels true so I'm always surprised by how little technological scientific advance there was under the Pax Romana. Yeah, they were lounging, which I kind of respect um, <laughs> in, in a way, you know, like I too would like to take a really nice bath and like go to a feast. So I, I can understand that impetus. Thank you as ever for bringing your genius and wit to the podcast. You'll be back on History with your own show, which only someone of, of your brilliance could have managed to force us to do a, basically a pub crawl around medieval London. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout. <laughs>